0: So today we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, our humble beginnings.
1: Very humble. <laughs> our, our, the
0: humblest, <laughs> humblest of beginnings. Uh, because they were. You know, it's always fun to sort of find out where people's first introductions to business and making money were. Yep. Because there's so many different places that it could have come from.
1: And, I mean, I've talked about how we started Freckle a bunch of times, but I've never... Almost never talked about what came before Freckle, other than consulting for big clients.
0: So, when we're talking about how we make money, that includes the products and businesses that we run today, that includes the consulting that we've done prior to, Uh, it includes jobs that we've had along the way. But we're going like way back to the beginning, like big bang. Of our understanding of sort of money and, and things like that.
1: Yeah. I was I was thinking about this the other day when I wrote that blog post about risk and the money that I had saved up as a thirteen year old to invest in the stock market. Right. Uh, that didn't come from like chores or washing cars. Yeah, I
0: was gonna ask you where that came from. It was like a thousand bucks was the number you put out in, yeah. in that blog post. And in
1: like nineteen ninety eight, that was a lot more than a thousand dollars today, I think.
0: And at age Thirteen. Thirteen.
1: Yeah. So... Yeah. It wasn't from my parents. Uh, I think unlike a lot of people in our industry, I grew up without much money. I earned that myself. Starting when I was, I think, 12, I wanted to write a book on HTML for kids. That didn't go anywhere. But what I did end up doing was taking some things that I had read and things that I had tried myself, and I wrote a little booklet on internet marketing. For kids? <laughs> no. Just true to my true to my roots uh, for adults. And I actually sold two copies on Yahoo Classifieds. Oh,
0: okay. So that was like they was that part of their like the directory thing that they bought. I don't even yeah, remember. What yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. was
1: it was not like a Craigslist. It wasn't local. It was like internet wide. Okay. And I think I sold two copies for like ten dollars each. And oh, and the funny thing. I really wish I still had the file that was in it, but a lot of it was like go befriend a community, become part of the community type stuff. And I was like 12. So I'm... You were
0: like itty-bitty safari.
1: Yeah, I was the nerdiest kid you could possibly imagine. And the problem with selling these little booklets on Yahoo Classifieds, and the reason I only ever sold two, um, was because it cost me more to have them printed and bound and mailed from Kinko's than Wait, I made.
0: These were actual, like, book, not Not, like... Yeah. PDF yeah. download. This no. was like an actual physical <laughs> thing, like a like a doctor's <laughs> office pamphlet on internet marketing. Basically. Yeah, and I went and I got that. You know
1: that 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 binding that they used to do with the machines that had like a strip along the end and then it had like claws. I know exactly what you're talking it like, about. <sighs> it was like some sort of weird alien Hans Geiger binding method, and then I had to mail it, and it was like fifteen dollars per, at least. So
0: so this was a money losing. <laughs> yeah.
1: I lost Effort. money All right. okay. um, i probably could have actually done it very affordably if i had a printer at home and didn't go for the fancy binding and the nice cover i really i over did it i i over it
0: so you were learning hard lessons very early yeah so can we talk about a time that didn't fail,
1: fail. <laughs> <laughs> well uh I, that means I can't tell the uh, Beanie Baby story.
0: I mean, <laughs> now that we're here, you may you have to tell the Beanie Baby story. Okay, so Beanie Babies, like that was. I remember when that was just everywhere. I mean, for as much hype as startups have today, I think Beanie Babies had as much or more. It was in But there's way more money in
1: startups than Beanie Babies. So, do um, you guys remember the Penny Saver? I do. So this is a market research fail, and it's very funny to look back on it. But I saw. What Beanie Babies were selling for on eBay, and then what they were listed for for sale in the Penny Saver, which was a like little local classifieds magazine. Basically, okay. it was local classifieds. Right. So only in my area. I saw what the Beanie Babies were listed for for sale, and I found some of them on eBay for far less. And so I bought them and then paid to have them listed in the Penny Saver for less than the previous ads are for. I thought that that was going to be a shoe in. But I learned that just because it's listed for sale for a certain price doesn't mean anyone is buying. And so I had a box of Beanie Babies that I only got rid of when I moved to Austria, which was about a decade later.
0: You know, it's funny. More than a
1: decade later. I carried those fucking Beanie Babies like (laughs) six moves because I just couldn't let them go.
0: You know, it's funny that you bring up the the value, like list value versus what people actually pay for. Because I didn't even think about it until you just said it. I collected comic books. Yeah. Because I was my own kind of nerd. Comic books and comic cards. I had a pretty significant collection. And actually, I got a lot of them because they cost money and I didn't have money. I earned a lot of comic books by bagging comic books For a local comic book shop, I'd go in for a couple of hours, I'd take the new books, put them in bags with backer boards, and for every box that I filled, and the boxes were like 36 inches long. That's that's like a few hours to do that. I would get $5 in credit to buy comic books at the shop, which, like, smart move on the comic book owner to get this kid who's hanging out all the time anyway. Like, hey, make yourself useful, and you can get more comic books instead of just thumbing through them while they're on the shelves. And I started collecting the books and finding the books that I liked and the cards that I liked. And then I picked up a copy of Wizard World magazine, which apart from being sort of like their, you know, ink entrepreneur, but for that kind of nerd. So price lists were a big part of Wizard World. And I remember going through my collection and being like, holy shit, I've got cards that are worth like $30, $50, $100. And then I started like,
1: what you believe?
0: Building a spreadsheet <laughs> as a – what kind of kid was I? Building a spreadsheet of how valuable my collection was. And I started collecting based on that, and I think it lost some of its luster. But it, w- it was actually that same comic book shop owner that told me one day, he's like, you know, just because it's listed at that price doesn't mean that somebody out there is actually going to buy it for that. And that was – I feel very sort of fortunate that i didn 't have to learn that in sort of a, a harder way, but that lesson list prices are a lie but that 's just it's like and i think when i when I look at you know the hypothetical valuations and things like that today, the thing that like the little trigger in my brain is. That's basically Wizard World, right? <laughs> it's
1: Wizard World. It's Wizard yes, World it for
0: for companies. Like that number is not worth anything until there's someone to pay that much for it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, valuations are exactly like that. You're, that's a very excellent metaphor, and people are going to hate that so much. And we write a blog post with that. Oh, comparison. it's going to be
0: good. It's going to be good. <laughs> so, so, but so these are these are more failed stories. We should probably right. get to uh, one where we actually made money. Okay. So what is like your earliest memory of putting something out there and making more money than it cost you to put that thing out there?
1: Um I was I guess maybe 11 when we got a CD burner. Okay. And I would sell my little middle school classmates custom mixed CDs for like 10 bucks.
0: So piracy. Okay, good. <laughs> Go on.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I know. That was before anyone was even talking about what it meant, though, though, to download MP3s. Like, MP3s were extremely still rare at that point.
0: And you were not showing up on Metallica's radar. So no, no, a, no. I was deal. small
1: potatoes. Also, I don't think anyone I knew listened to Metallica other than me. <laughs> so that was like ten bucks a pop. I didn't. I didn't do that a ton because of the materials actually. That was when CD Rs were like three dollars each, and it was expensive. like a lot of work. And yeah. I was like, eh. and slow. Slow. It was a two X CD ROM. So to write a sixty minute CD, it took thirty minutes. And that totally tied up my computer the entire time,
0: right? Because Windows was like, Grr. I was on, I was on Mac, on Mac even Mac? And then, All right, yeah. Well, I, I remember running Nero on Windows, and it just being like, Grr. like you couldn't <laughs> do anything, couldn't do anything other than burn a CD. Yeah,
1: it was it was really uh, time consuming, and so I was like, I value my computer time more than this. Screw that. The second thing. Was
0: Wait, before you do that, how did you figure out that people would pay for those CDs? Did you just like try it and someone's like, hey, can you burn a CD for me? And you're like, sure, 10 uh, bucks.
1: No, it was definitely like a hypothetical, hey, if I did this for you with your songs on it, one CD, I mean, if you went to the store, it would be $16 for the CD for the entire album, but you don't really want it. Um, so
0: you were already pitching on value. I really was, yeah. <laughs> you know what I love about what you just said, though? Like you, if you were a typical, how old were with this time?
1: 11 or 12.
0: Okay, so the average 11 or 12-year-old is going to be like, I'm going to make you the most awesome burn CD, mix CD that I know how to make. You want that. That's $10, right? And people are like, "Yeah, you know what? I think I'll spend my money on comic books or whatever it was. But you took the, you know, you could take that money to the CD store and have to spend it on an album where you don't actually want all the songs. Like, there are two ways to sell another 11-year-old a mix CD and know it or not you, you picked one that that people were actually gonna yeah. potentially respond to
1: well it's well, it was weird because right uh we had a cd-rom which was a, a cdr burner at that point which was a, like a luxury type item my mother bought that but like didn't i didn't have money for other things like i would go to school with ratty clothes and stuff and so i was always thinking about what things cost like if i wanted a cd that I had to get to Sam Goody somehow with sixteen dollars or seventeen dollars to get a CD. That was when they had those big cases and the locking and and all that crap. It was like a big deal.
0: And you, the only way to buy the CD was to buy the whole CD. And if exactly, the, and and or the, single. And the mu- music industry is not not really well known for uh, releasing albums that are full of hits.
1: No, that's kind of the whole point, actually. Right. Bundling. <laughs> yeah, us tech startup. Info product, people did not invent bundling.
0: No, 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 no.
1: <laughs> Newspapers invented bundling. Really? I think so. If you think about a newspaper, it doesn't make sense. If you think about why are all these things together in one item, they would have nothing to do with each other other than that they're in a newspaper together. And
0: once you're distributing it once, you can sort of offset costs of things that aren't going to make money with things
1: that are. Yeah. But that's a, that's another that's aside. Another, that's another conversation. Yeah, I did. I was like, well, you could buy the whole CD for sixteen dollars, or I could give you only the songs you want on a CD, an entire CD for ten dollars.
0: And for someone who does not have a two hundred fifty, three hundred dollars CD burner, yep, or the not know how to do it, that's actually that's a pretty good deal. It
1: is a pretty good deal. Yeah, that so that worked. I made money on that, but I I didn't keep I didn't keep doing it. I think the next thing that I made regular money on. Other than a couple little freelance gigs here and there, which I I did have as a kid, uh, I started a Mac, a, a Mac News, opinion, and how-to website when I was 14, and worked up to between six to twelve hundred dollars a month in ads. Okay. Over the next few months.
0: So you you had a taste of ad sales very early.
1: I did, and the thing is, when I told people that I was going to start this Mac News website. Everyone, including people who ran existing Mac sites, told me that there was no room in the market for anything else, but I looked at what content was popular and what I liked and looked at what most of these sites produce and thought I can do something different that people want and uh, I made the how to content really like explaining the technical aspects of the way computers worked in a like the way that I explain things now, which is full of metaphor um, and very very much clear to understand and fun. I instead of being like I'm this important news website, which is how all the other ones wrote, I wanted to be more like David Pogue who wrote these really fun and
0: sort of like narrative friendly
1: narrative full of jokes and puns and metaphors. It was
0: more like a story.
1: Exactly, more like a story or or like really sad stand up. <laughs> I, I still have a lot of the articles that I wrote. I would love saved, to read, yeah, I would love to read some of those. I will post those, but uh, I proved them wrong and uh Got Between like 100 and 200,000 impressions a month at the peak,
0: and so how were you finding ad customers?
1: I contacted the people who were advertising on other Mac websites
0: and just reached out email. Phone I call. did,
1: yeah. My main advertiser was Small Dog,
0: I remember that, but I don't remember what it was.
1: Uh, it was a Mac electronic store, okay. Other ones were various RAM producers, um, and, and retailers, they did like deal RAM, right? And uh, and so on, they did advertising, yeah.
0: Cool. Very, very cool. But
1: again, there's Amy doing her research.
0: Right. And right.
1: looking for holes in the market.
0: Where'd you go from there?
1: I acquired another Mac News website.
0: All right. Still in journalism. Keep going. So
1: the funny thing about Mac News websites in the late 90s is about 30% of them were run by teenagers. Really? Yeah. Brian Breslin ran one.
0: I, we've talked about that. Yeah. Brian Breslin's a, a mutual friend uh, from, from down in Miami.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He and I knew each other as teens teen Mac website producers
0: sort of like alter universe of (laughs) of the uh, of the not not kids bop but what was the what was the Disney kids Kids and company kids and company yeah like the uh, like the altered door the altered (laughs)
1: k-i-t-s I'm
0: glad I'm glad we had that experience together Um,
1: I always thought they were really bad business people
0: (laughs) (laughs) Amy, Amy was a fun kid
1: (laughs) <laughs> I had no friends. Surprise. Um
0: All right. So did you did you is there a reason that you got out of doing journalism?
1: Oops. Oh, I just got tired of it. And you had to had to keep publishing to get the ad sales right. You so. have to keep
0: publishing to get the ad sales sales right. And you also have to keep chasing new advertisers. I there... didn't
1: I didn't do I didn't do that a lot of that. No. No, I didn't do a lot of that. It was just it I, was, it was just... still small fish at a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand impressions. That was still small. Sure. Small potatoes. Um this was before Google AdWords and everything. This is this is way back when. This is like 98, 99, 2000, 2001. i did it for four or five years. Cool. But I did it at po- at one point have like contributors that I paid like 100 to 200 dollars an article and had a semi-custom content management system and all kinds of stuff.
0: Awesome. So you got tired of running that because journalism is a slog no yeah. matter how you do it even the people that are good at it.
1: Yeah, just and I just I just, just kind of lost interest.
0: And ad-supported like ad businesses just require constant maintenance, high level of constant maintenance. Constant
1: maintenance. Now, I will say, though, that running this site got me so many opportunities. Um, that's how I got into tech editing. Okay. I used to get paid upwards of $4 a page to do technical editing for Sam's and Q. Um, and towards the end, I was working with Addison Wesley to put together a proposal for a new Apple Hig okay interface guidelines we got really far along in the project with addison wesley um this is when i was 19 i guess so 2003 maybe sure can i I do math yeah that's right but apple would not approve the project even though apple had come to addison wesley originally and of course there's never been another higgs so it never happened for anyone apple just lost interest but um i wrote a book (laughs) that never got published because the publishing company sold right on the eve of when they were wrapping it up and and i got paid Page writer write a book. I got some job offers and just a bunch of stuff happened because I was out there and publishing, which to anyone who follows the 30 by 500 model will understand. I was dropping e-bombs and not only did it make me money on the e-bombs, but it actually brought me all kinds of opportunities as well because I was establishing my credibility.
0: I don't know if you saw in the um, 30 by 500 chat room today, actually, one of our students just posted that a recruiter that was shopping him around to some companies specifically started using some of his e bombs as basically the part of pitching him as hey you should hire this guy because not only is he good but he shows how good he is by putting it out You like, can go go read absolutely stuff. and uh, he was really impressed by that i thought that was really cool and he said you know even though i believe in what 3500 can do to help me get the kind of product business that i want in the meantime while oh, i'm still yeah.
1: reap the rewards i'm
0: still stacking the bricks like stacking the bricks doesn't mean don't get paid until you get the big payday, like you can make money along the way, absolutely, and, read. yeah,
1: so I was double triple dipping and I was just 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 tired of writing about Mac stuff anymore um but so during that time, I had also been looking for ways other ways to make money that didn't involve regular jobs, so i did I learned a uh, new HTML from a very young child, I learned to do web page design um I was pretty good at it I kind of bridged into application design a little bit I I had friends who did consulting and I kind of horned in they would out- outsource stuff to me because um, I I knew how to use photoshop and I had a, a decent visual sense and I was always reading about design books and stuff and then I, I slowly got into programming because I had worked with programmers so long I was like well why am I relying on other people to do this for me and I could earn a lot more if I knew how to do it myself and also I just don't like not knowing things so I was doing Freelancing and, and design and development at the time, fairly poorly in terms of the business sense, though. I mean, I was still doing like 34 dollars an hour for the most part, but I was doing a very bad job of being a consultant. But I did some other stuff. Uh, I started selling uh, things on eBay, which I wrote about.:
0: So I know a little bit about what happened on eBay. Why don't you say a little more about it?
1: So I used to make about a $1,000 a month selling IKEA lamps on eBay.
0: To who? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Most of America who didn't have access to IKEA. This was before uh, they had any kind of spread across the United States. And you could get the catalog, but they wouldn't ship.
0: So you were looking for what people were interested in buying it and then reselling S- it on eBay? Or how, how so did that actually
1: work? So I... Love eBay. I think above all else. I mean, I hate eBay, the company and the software experience. I was going to say,
0: I, I I know you you have a very special relationship with eBay. A,
1: it's it's love hate. <laughs> yes, um, I love what I can find on eBay and learn, but I hate eBay itself. But that's neither here nor there. I used to to get the things that I wanted to have, computers and cameras and stuff that I couldn't otherwise afford. I had to really find good deals. So I got the point where I was. Buying uh, lenses locally or off uh, Usenet or the classifieds, um, and then fixing them up and selling them. On eBay. On eBay, where the prices could be better if you presented yourself well. So, for example, uh, when I was 16 or 17, I bought a pair of Mamiya RB67 medium format cameras with three lenses for $900. And I was able to, to clean one up and sell one of the bodies for almost $900. So I almost got the medium format camera set up for free. Wow. Yeah. It's all about how you position and uh, sell with the eBay listing.
0: Can you go into a little more detail on that though? Like what, like what was it that made your listings sell so well?
1: I always would start with 99 cents or just a couple dollars. So the people would get invested by bidding early at a low price since they would get emotionally invested. Would never set a reserve price. People hate reserve prices. It really freezes the bidding a reserve price is a secret number where the item won't sell unless bids go above it but the people who are bidding have no idea what that is so that's really discouraging because people will bid and they'll bid and they won't have the secret number and they'll have no idea where it is
0: i'm after like the third or fourth they you give like, up oh, screw it
1: yeah i feel like items for reserve prices often do not sell
0: and at a certain point the ebay buyer culture just knows it and so they they see things that are with a reserve price and they don't even bother looking. don't even at
1: bother it. uh it's like learned helplessness. Uh, I would be extremely detailed and personal in the listing item, of the item. So if there were any flaws, I would describe them, and I would describe how it affects the usage of it. I photographed everything in great detail. I told why I had it, why I was selling it, what makes it great, what I did to it to fix it up, or anything like that of that nature. And I included just tons of, tons of pictures. But I also, I then, as I was spending so much time on eBay, just kind of clicking around and looking because I was curious what is selling, just kind of like when I used to read the Penny Saver. I wasn't a 12-year-old looking in the pen and saver to buy furniture or, or anything. I was just curious. So I'm like, what's what's going on? And so I would look all over eBay, and I discovered that people were selling IKEA products on eBay for way more than they went in the store because I used to live near one of the first IKEA's in the United States. And um, I would go hang out there for fun. I, uh, you
0: know, I think that was, an, that was a uh, – a suburban thing to do.
1: It was a suburban thing to do. I mean and they
0: made the thing where you did they have the meatballs then where you could like oh, yeah. actually go there for a meal. So it wasn't oh, yeah. it wasn't that
1: weird. Yeah, and you could see it from a hill behind my house. So it was just sort of like a fixture in my life. So I'd be like, hmm, this IKEA lamp is like four or five dollars and they're selling it for like ten dollars. And then I thought, they're making all these mistakes. They're flooding the market, they're listing a ton of the same item at once, they don't have the details in it. Uh I can do better. And I did. I used all my techniques and started Drop shipping, Ikea stuff. I I had a special app that I ran. I I bought a cheap PC just to run this particular app that would manage all my listings. And so I would stagger the listings and I would keep track of what inventory I had to go buy. And then I I learned to pick items that could be shipped in their own boxes because I had learned the lesson from that pamphlet I printed at Kinko's not to overspend.
0: shipping costs can And preparation, yeah. Yeah.
1: So I had a stamps.com type thing. I would print postage, or it was Pitney Bowes back then. I would print postage. I would just slap it on the box, wrap it in tape, and, and drop ship it. Um, and I would only – I would not keep stock in my house. I would go buy it so this just was in time.
0: Just in time. <laughs> <laughs> so so IKEA was footing the bill on the warehouse because it was their warehouse, and that's amazing.
1: <laughs> there were a couple issues, though. Like? Well, they made these limited edition, and they didn't say that they were limited edition. They made these limited edition bubble mirrors, like 1960s Werner Panton. They were uh, like 14 or 16 by 16 inch squares of molded plastic that had bubbles and and, and stuff like funhouse mirrors covered in mylar. And those things sold like fucking hotcakes. They made me so much money. (laughs) And then I had sold a bunch and there were none in stock. Oh, there were for a while there were none in stock. Like there was no estimate of when the stock would be, so I had to call the IKEAs all up and down the East Coast, and we ended up taking a two and a half hour road trip to Jersey to stock up so I could fulfill the orders. I Definitely lost big money on that. So I imagine... also my boyfriend hated me because <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't drive yet. Yeah, it was a it was a crazy time.
0: So the theme through all these things is really Amy is like insatiably curious. Oh yeah, Amy is never satisfied to <laughs> let somebody else do something without at least knowing how it works right so there's that. I think that that's worth it even if you're not the one doing it, you at least want to know how it works constantly doing research i didn't hear a single throw a dart at the dartboard bo- dart attempt in that in that sequence there are things that that cropped up along the way sort of serendipitously but they all gr- were outgrowths of Things yeah. that were very strategic. Whether you knew that that was what you were going to get, you had enough experience to know that if you do that thing, there's a, a good thing on the other side of it.
1: Yep. I also would set, set financial goals of stuff that I wanted to buy and figure out how to get the money. When I was uh, 11 or 12, part of the, the time where I was saving up the money, I really wanted to buy a Power Mac my mother was like, we don't have the money. I can't afford it, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so among other things, I held yard sales and I sold all of my My Little Ponies for $80 and other stuff like that to to, uh, to get the money. And then I, I bought a Power Mac off Usenet and then I later swapped that to my brother for his laptop, which I then fixed up and sold to get myself up the, the property ladder of, of Macintoshes.
0: So there's also an element of... Investment and reinvestment, where you're stacking Stack the, the bricks, bricks over and over and over. Um, really, you know, w- were there any specific like influences, like books, or w- were you just pulling this stuff out of thin air?
1: I've written and said before that I was a strange kid who would read everything in the library. I ended up reading tons of business books, like spin selling and how to win friends and influence people and investment guides, everything. I read everything. But I think. That particular angle that you're talking about, why do I always look for knowledge first, why do I start with research first, yeah. is because when I was younger than that even, I was obsessed with Desmond Morris. Do you remember him?
0: I don't, actually. I, I know his name from you, but I don't he I don't. He did a series of
1: books and TV shows, and I think I found out about him from a TV show on like Discovery Channel or something, People Watching. And then he did cat watching and baby watching and all this stuff. It's like the natural
0: progression. Let's let's get cuter.
1: What if David Attenborough (laughs) studied human behavior?
0: Okay, yeah, that's That, that sounds... was him. Okay. And he had this sort of
1: rise sense of humor, which, I mean, David Attenborough is a very straight Are man. Are these but... on
0: DVD or, or YouTube or something? Do you know, have you looked for them recently? I have not
1: ever looked for them. I feel like
0: this would be a fun thing to sit it would down be and a watch. Fun maybe, thing. maybe we even do like a yeah, like Mystery my... Science Theater 3000 of you and I watching and doing commentary. That would be that so awesome. Be
1: anyway, I loved him as a kid. I would, he was just like. Look, you can observe people and understand why they behave the way they do, and also cats. I mean, it may have started with cat watching, really. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was a kid who made geocity web pages full of cat pictures, right That was my first thing that I did online um, and I was just sucked in by the idea that you can observe something and understand it and I, I've been thinking recently like where did I end up with this'm f- that was a very strange thing for a child to do all those things I did, so I think that it was Desmond Morris, yeah, I'm pretty sure Desmond Morris made me who I am
0: well uh we should send him a thank you note.
1: I really should. I wonder if, I hope he's still alive.
0: Even if he's not, maybe we can send him a thank you note. (laughs) I love you, Desmond Morris. (laughs) That's, I mean, for, for folks that are, are are listening in today in the chat room, uh, you know, I I hope that this paints a picture. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it's a crazy leap to think about how all of those things lead you to being a high paid consultant and then also being able to figure out that, freckle not that freckle is needed but that there is a problem that needs to be solved and that solution to that problem would and to
1: understand freckle, freckle. why what the problems are what the pains are because as i said recently in that podcast with uh, jane portman ui breakfast podcast if you say people don't track their time well you need to understand why people don't track their time in order to actually solve that problem for them, right. and they don't tell you. You can't expect them to sit down and tell you. You have to essentially watch what they do and not what they say. And that right there is cell safari. It's an ethnography in the digital world.
0: You know, I I have my own stories as well, and and I think I was a little more. My scrappiness came from a different place, but I think, <laughs> but I think my my drive. So so I mean, I had a weird influence in my life in that my dad was an entrepreneur, but out of sort of a attitudinal necessity more than anything else. Like my dad is a terrible employee in the same way that I am a terrible employee. Yeah. My dad went to chiropractic school and he did the necessary requirements to work for somebody else's practice before you can start your own, but only the bare necessities. My dad is independent to a fault. And that is true to this very day. And I think about growing up around my dad and the business that he ran. And not that my dad was like an extraordinarily successful entrepreneur, but my dad was independent. My dad thought his own way. And my dad is totally not afraid to look at something and be like, I think that's stupid. And I think there's a better way to How do that. How come
1: I've never met your dad? I feel like you have. I don't think I have. I've met your sister. I've not met your mom or your dad. Interesting. We were supposed to go to um, your last holiday. Oh, that's but right. I was too Passover.
0: sick. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we will We will make that Next happen. Next time. And also we can go to the House with my dad and Judy. So, you know, I think I had this sort of subconscious influence from my dad's just total and complete worldview of everyone else is an idiot. Just let me get my fucking work done. Yep. Which is definitely like anybody who knows my dad would agree. Yep, that's Ken. And I approached schoolwork that way. I was like, why are we going at, at this pace? Like, I'm ready to move on. Hate that. And... You know, the, the infrastructure around me always felt like I, I was bumping up against it. And so when it started, you know, I, I, I sort of joke that some of the earliest things I did to make money, I, I actually sold doorstops outside of my dad's chiropractic office. He had a home office. Um, and by doorstops, I mean rocks that I pulled out of the backyard. But I was a kid and it was like, you need a doorstop, right? And they're like, that door's it's closing. And, and not only, is, and here's the thing: is like, I could, you could buy a rock, sure, but I painted these other ones. Oh,
1: you painted the rocks?
0: Premium rocks. <laughs> this, is, this is a true story. That's not. It's not where I learned anything at all. I had a series of jobs where I, I think I was pretty fortunate to have bosses that recognized that as long as they stayed out of my way, I would get a lot of work done. And having that freedom and leeway let me f- discover a lot of similar things that you did and, and let me sort of – I think a thing that we have in common is we're just like intensely curious and want to learn how things work. And so one of my first jobs that I would consider professionals – like I worked in a movie theater – like, way too early in age. Like, and that's a story for another day. I don't even want to talk about it. Um, I, I, and The only influence that working in this movie theater had on my life, and maybe it's more important than I give it credit for, is this crazy old woman ran a one-screen movie theater in my hometown. And a 12-year-old me, I think my parents had a dinner party. I was driving them nuts by being underfoot. And they were like... Why don't you go get a job? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I jumped on my rollerblades and I rollerbladed down into town and I knocked on the movie theater and I was like, I want a job. And she That's was an crazy and said right yes. And that was that was very much my life. Um this woman, the fact that I mean, this everything about this movie theater was a disaster. Literally everything. I don't I'm, I'm sure it never made money. I'm sure I think her father owned it and it, yeah. it had its heyday and it was a 1950s, like um, like the very like uh, old classic marquee, like it was a beautiful building, but she never put up the posters and the cardboard stand-ups that the company sent us. So there was all of this collectible movie shit in this place. And her, she was terrible marketing. Shit's
1: worth so much money now.
0: Um, so I the only influence that this place actually had on my business life is whatever ellie would do do the opposite because she (laughs) Uh, just it's
1: really instructive i've learned so much about being someone who runs a company from looking at how my boss is screwed up
0: yeah yeah so you
1: also have told me um that you're scarred for life by the crap that you put on the popcorn to make it quote-unquote buttery
0: oh it's not so much that it's that it was it was more often stale than it was fresh yeah um i have a weird addiction to movie theater popcorn it's actually like it's a it's a comfort food for me in a very, very peculiar kind of way. But not just any movie theater popcorn. Stale movie theater popcorn. That's
1: that's I misremembered. Yes, because, that's be, weird.
0: Because what would happen is, is I would go up into this sort of like closet booth thing where we would pop the popcorn not for getting better <laughs> for eight hours. So basically locked in a popcorn dungeon for eight hours, not eating the popcorn then because it was fresh then. I would bag it, and then we'd store the bags, which is gross, but I know a lot of movie theaters do this. So movie theater popcorn is gross to begin with. But I, And then we would, we would reheat the popcorn in that sort of behind-glass bin up front. So we'd dump in the bag of popcorn that maybe I made a week ago, sprinkle some salt on it, and it's just like a little bit st- or a lot chewy. stale and chewy. And I love that shit. And I don't know why. I know it's gross. Everything about it is gross. But for some reason, that is a that's comfort food for me. But we need to stop talking about this movie theater and talk about actual business. Oh, experience. that is that
1: is a long aside.
0: That's a long aside. So so the first <laughs> like the first for me memory of what I would qualify as could be quali- you know, like a prof- like a profession right like I would consider the work you did on eBay professional. Right.
1: Sloppy, but professional. Right.
0: I mean, you can there's you can do a lot that's professional and still be sloppy. It's the the bandwidth you have for that is is remarkable. I worked in a mom and pop computer repair shop that uh, I had broken my home computer and my my dad being the fixer upper kind of guy was like. We'll learn how to fix it. And then he opened up the computer and he's like, you learn how to fix it.
1: (laughs) So I went over to a friend's house
0: and I got on the internet. I started like Googling, not Googling, but Yahooing or Lycosing around the internet to try and like, like, why is my computer clicking? And then it's like, oh, it's either a fan or a hard drive. And I like replaced the fan and it wasn't the fan. I was like, all right, I have a busted hard drive, No. which sucked. But like that was my first diagnosis. At some point I ended up needing a new motherboard. And I walk into the computer shop, and I say, uh, I need a new mini ATX motherboard. And these two guys from behind the counter who may as well have been, like, a slightly older version of Dante and Randall from Clerks. But a computer shop version are like, to this 14-year-old me, what are you going to do with a mini ATX motherboard? I proceeded to tell them exactly what I was going to do with a mini ATX motherboard. And they were like, do you want to come and hang out with us after – like, do you want to come and hang out with us after school? And we'll teach you – like, you can learn. And – that was like that was a huge opportunity for me and I think I knew it at the time. I was really really pumped about it and they paid me, but the the thing that that job did for me more than anything else was it gave me exposure to a lot of problems in people's computers. So this is you know we're, we're talking late 90s early 2000s home PCs are fairly new. A lot of people have this is literally their first computer. Windows is prolific and virus protection, most people don't have it. So a lot of our customers were people who had computer viruses. And I got a knack for being able to know not just that somebody had a virus, but which virus they had and what I was going to have to do to Alex, solve it. Alex the
1: virus whisperer.
0: I could do that over the phone.
1: Dude, I believe that. You know why I believe that? Why because do you
0: believe that? What
1: Between... Middle school and high school, I wrote a local ISP and said, I'm a student looking for something to do in the summer. I want to earn the money or earn a PC to run Linux on. And that was Toadnet in Annapolis run by Dave Troy.
0: Whoa, that's a name I haven't heard in a while. That's wild.
1: Yeah. Cool. So that, that's so, the Dave yeah, Troy connection. I, that's the Dave Troy connection. I worked in an ISP when I was 13, 14 that summer. Uh, same time. Did a lot of phone support. It's like, you know, when they're like, I don't know anything about computers. Let me put my kid on. You can hear the fucking kid picking his nose. And you're like, okay, <laughs> go to my computer. Do you see my computer? And kid's like, huh? So,
0: so I, Did so you do that too? I, I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, did, I did. So I, I had a couple of things that I was able to do because I had a massive throughput of experience in a very short period of time. I'm fixing yeah. between like 10 and 25 computers a day. I'm just totally like crushing out whether it's. Sometimes like a modem upgrade, but sometimes it is something that's actually like something is broken and I have to figure out what's broken and solve it. And once you've found the same problem like a half a dozen times through different ways, you're like, oh, I now know what this looks like from exposure from a, from a mile away. Yeah. And, totally. that, and you've, you,
1: get, you get gut instincts about it.
0: And but they're informed. And not only that, but I also noticed w- something in the people who were showing up to our shop with their virus problems. One of the most common things was is that they were going to Best Buy or Staples or, mm-hmm. or Circuit City to their tech support desk or even just calling Compaq because, you know, that's most people out of Compaq or Gateway 2000. And the tech's default was you have a virus. We have to erase your hard drive. So they were coming to us saying, I have this problem. And they would never say. Best Buy told me I have a virus. Can you get rid of it without erasing the hard drive? But that's exactly what was going on in right. their head. They would call and say, my computer's acting funny. Well, what's going on with your computer? And we would sort of go through this pantomime that would help me understand what was wrong and ultimately end up diagnosing the virus almost always correctly before they even brought me the computer. But more importantly, how did I get them in the door to bring me the computer? Was I told them, I said, look, I'm pretty sure it's this problem we've seen a lot of it going around you're not alone what we're able to do here is 95 of the time i'll be able to get rid of the virus and protect you against it happening in the future and we won't have to get rid of your we won't have to replace your hard drive we won't have to raise your hard drive you won't lose any data and that last part you won't lose any data They're like i'll see you in 10 minutes Every Absolutely. single time. Every single Absolutely.
1: time. Absolutely, I I so I identify with their pain because we took a computer and against my protests because I knew this wasn't possible. Mother was like, "This Mac has a virus," and took it to CompUSA. Motherfuckers formatted our hard drive without permission. Um, it happened. It happened, it happened, all happened the time. a lot. It happened a lot. Happened a lot. And so being able to say, even though they didn't come out and say, "Please don't erase my hard drive," you
0: I knew. knew it had come you'd up. Seen
1: this problem, so you read between the lines based on essentially. Ethnography slash sales safari.
0: Even if, voter. even if they, even for the people who hadn't been through that experience of Best Buy telling them we yeah. can fix the problem by erasing your hard drive, if I can anticipate that most people are not going to be super excited about being told we've got to reformat your hard drive and reinstall your operating system, you're going to lose everything. Right. Nobody likes that news. No, nobody likes that. News. And so, if I can say, you know, sometimes you this has to happen, but I'm pretty sure that if you get this in today. I can jump on it. We can deal with the virus before it gets any worse, and I'll be able to do it. If it's the virus I think it is, I'll be able to do it in a non-destructive way, instant sale, and they're so thankful, they're so grateful, and, 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 holy shit, did they tell everybody about me. This whiz kid down, basically Doogie Hauser for computer viruses, down at the computer shop, can, if your computer's acting weird, just take it to him, he'll figure it out. And my boss loved this, of course, because they're making... Money hand over fist, yeah, and happily paying me, you know, twenty bucks an hour. For me, in high school, it was awesome. That's money. a lot of money. It was awesome money. Um, the other thing, and I, I sort of bounced back and forth between that, and there was a retail component to that job as well. I wasn't just like back in the computer fixing pit, but I did more forward facing retail at Staples, uh, which had a pretty like it was the same sort of thing though. It was computer retail.
1: It was commissioned. You were saying right?
0: So it's part of it was commissioned. Uh, we were commissioned on selling certain upgrades and all those warranties that everybody hates uh, and things like that. But the thing w- that was interesting was – so I wasn't the only person who worked in my department selling business machines is what they called it, which is you know computers, printers, fax machines, uh, cell phones, GPSs, and then also cables, accessories, software, all of those sorts of things. So
1: most of the store – well, <laughs>
0: there was also the furniture department on paper supplies. No, it was really no, only no. like a quarter of the store, no, no, but joking. I think I think we were like a large percentage of the revenue. Oh, that, that makes sense. So what was interesting was so I had a couple of coworkers and I had a great team and I really liked my manager and it was a job where I had a lot of fun. I really did enjoy it, and I watched some of my teammates sell computers in a and accessories and things like that and in a very particular way. Where they're basically going for the highest sale, whether that was based on commission or we even were just – we got rewards based on sales volume, right? So it wasn't really a commission per se, but I was like top salesperson for the week because I sold you know, the $3,200 compact Presario and I sold six of them. Presario. Right? Yeah, there we go. So I took a different approach because I watched most of the people come into Staples buying their very first computer. They were timid. They were in, they were afraid. They were confused. They saw these little placards in front of the computer that listed out a bunch of numbers, and they didn't know any of it meant. And so, like, is that number better than that number? And like, that's where their heads were. M- meanwhile, none of the other salespeople are asking them. So, what are you going to use this computer for? Like, are you going to play k- games? Right. Are you doing word processing? Are you going to get on the internet? Um, internet? Because that was, that was an optional. Like, do you want to make music CDs? Do you want to burn CDs? Like, nobody asked those questions. And I started asking those questions. That was out of the gate. Hey, what's up? My name is Alex. I uh, see so you're checking out whatever computer. And no, nothing about the computer. What do you, What do you want to be able to do with this thing? And then from what I would deduce, I would say, all right, sounds like these are your top two options. And let me tell you why this one's better than this one. But basically, like, what are the pros and cons between the two? And I'm basically doing, uh, they're, they're instantly at ease. I've spent a bunch of time listening to them.
1: Absolutely. To
0: find out what they actually showed up for. In some cases, they don't even know. Like, they don't even know what a computer can do. So simply by, you know, if they don't know, it's like, all right, well, here's some of the things that you might use it for. Oh, right, word processing. I do want to do that. Is it, is it hard to get on the internet? Is that expensive? And I was like, well, you know, we, we actually have deals with a couple of local providers and I can make some introductions and, you know, it costs this much a month and extra phone line. And I basically help them add up the math. I'm Everything I'm doing to make them feel smarter. Oh, yeah. And they're feeling yeah. more confident and I've got them whittled down to like two really good options. And at that point, you know, whether they're within 100, 200 bucks of each, uh, of each other, it doesn't matter. They're going to buy. There's no way they're not buying. And if they don't buy today, right. it's only because they're going to go home. It's
1: because you help them. You I'll help talk them it over feel better. And
0: they will come back and not only come back to buy the computer, they'll come back and ask for me, which drove my coworkers nuts because nobody asked for them by name. I always got asked for by name because I'll go out of my way to teach them a little bit about computers to help them feel really comfortable in making what was a significant purchase. Again, we're talking like $2,000 was a cheap PC, you know, when stuff dropped below a grand, it was that was a big deal, and that took a really, really long time. Yes, it did. And they weren't very good. That was like the e-machines, and they were crap. And my coworkers would sell them to people who were, were clearly cheaping out but not – not help people understand why even two hundred dollars more was worth spending at any rate
1: those crazy like swoopy purple cases though of course i do oh that was I so did. crazy the uh, the industrial the design
0: yes and and the sony's so oh, the so, sonys. There, so there was that then there was uh, so so it was making them feel at ease basically i'm earning the sale
1: yeah their pain wasn't that they didn't have a computer their pain was that they were like fucking intimidated
0: because computers are intimidating, first purchase absolutely like buying their first car, like or first any major appliance or and that's, whatever. That's
1: the leap that most people don't make until they've been like beaten down and and educated the The software or the product is not the s- solution for the pain necessarily. It is a deeper level, and we we talk about this in thirty by five hundred because we've had extremely similar situations and, and done our research and learned that this is pretty much universal. Like the, the real pain that Freckle solves for people is that they don't have good compliance for their time tracking for their employees or their um, freelancers or themselves. And the issue isn't, I don't have time tracking software. I need to buy time tracking software. Look, here's a panoply of time tracking softwares. I picked this one. No, the problem is that they don't have time tracking that they do because compliance is the, is the issue because of pain and discomfort and stress and annoyance.
0: So the other thing that I learned... Okay,
1: sorry. Back to you. That's okay. That's
0: okay. The other thing that I learned was, and I didn't know this word at the time, but I watched... I realized when people would come back asking for me by name that I could do something. And that was... Steal their souls? Sell more stuff.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) So my coworkers
0: were approaching things from a perspective of, I've got to get every dollar out of this person's wallet right now.
1: Oh, premature optimization.
0: Premature something. And I took the approach of helping them feel so confident in their first purchase and maybe even making them feel comfortable spending a little bit more because – and also maybe not selling the bundled printer today. Right. Because I'm like, if you don't have something to print today, you don't need a printer today. When you're ready for a printer, come ask for me, and I will help you get the best printer for what you actually do you want to be printing holiday and greeting cards do you just want to be doing like school work for your you know your kids printing out papers yeah. different kinds of printers are you going to be printing out manuscripts is this for a business you should probably get a laser printer it's a little more upfront, but you'll save on ink all of these kinds of things and I was basically playing the customer lifetime value game even though I wasn't tracking my customer lifetime value that was not yeah. what I was I mean, my employer probably was yeah. I was going at it from a perspective of I wanna earn the sale, I wanna earn your trust, and when you come back, everything you ever need for this computer, I want you to think of me
1: Just and come. Just call back your to me. name and you'll be there.
0: Just say my name three times and I'll be right there in your in your computer. I was room. going
1: for more Jackson five. You went bloody mary slash Beetlejuice. <laughs> <laughs> interesting how cl- how how thin the line can be
0: <laughs> so, you know, I think my, my my skills in these sort of two these sort of two components culminated uh, do you remember when some of the states started doing PC tax-free week?
1: Yes. I did Apple demo days at Best Buy and CompUSA during those times, but I didn't earn any money. I was just a little fangirl wearing a special Apple shirt that had IMAX <laughs> all over it.
0: All right. So I made a shitload of money. and <laughs> Yeah, and you, you did how. a better job. <laughs> so so Staples <laughs> was, had massive campaigns when the yes. state did this. And it was sometime in August, I want to say, which was cool because it was right before my birthday. This was like super, super birthday party for me. I did... Alex w- only w- ever
1: earned money to throw parties for I the s- first, like, true. two and a half decades of his life. <laughs> What's <laughs> changed? Um, well, now it's a house party, as in you get a house for it.
0: The week... And I wish I could remember what year it was. I'm going to ballpark it. was probably somewhere in 2000, 2001, when they did this. the The first tax-free PC week that we participated in, my sales incentives commissions bonuses and things like that that is excluding my hourly pay so this is just bonuses was more than the general manager of the entire store made in his salary in the entire month
1: so you told me this earlier and i was really impressed and you're saying it again and like how did you know what your general manager's salary was
0: because he said so oh he said so no, Okay. it was th- they were, like they could not believe that i had moved so many damn computers well done yeah yeah, they, they were. And that was
1: your commission.
0: That was that was commission. That not was not your sales volume. That was bonus. Yeah, sales volume was. I, I wish I could remember what the numbers were, but it was. Uh, it was. It was fun. Like we were. I, I was lining them up, just lining them up, and people. And it was a beautiful thing that. And again, I had built in word of mouth because people that had been considering buying a computer were maybe waiting off for a few weeks because they knew this event was coming, right. and not only were they coming in, but they told all their friends to come in and ask for Alex. Right. So again, all my coworkers are super pissed because all these people are coming in and they're like, oh, you know, it's okay. I get it's really busy, and I really just want to wait for Alex. And they won't get they won't get their incentives unless their code <laughs> gets keyed in with the right, sale. Right. Right. It was awesome. <laughs> that
1: is that is that is lovely. That's that's the. I mean, you essentially grew your audience with e-bombs. By educating people, there was no hard – you couldn't have done a hard sell. Like you can't force someone to buy stuff. So you educated them. They could have easily walked out and gone to the other store and used the knowledge. But because you helped them and made them feel so at ease and attacked their actual pains and made them feel understood and listened to, they wanted you to earn money. People look at commerce and selling things as this is some sort of horrible, contentious, abusive relationship.
0: Right and this. it can
1: be but it is not innate to the way of selling things no. it is not required
0: i when, I, when i'm se- whatever i'm selling this is true of all that all the things i did the entire time i spent consulting the agencies that i worked for indie hall itself the business that we run together every time i'm in a i, I i'm i can be good at a hard sell but i don't like it yep. don't, there are people who like it i'm just not one of them there people that no, really of get, get off on that that boiler room game I love being on the same team as someone who I know I can help.
1: Absolutely, that and is that's a great feeling, and
0: I love them feeling like we're on the same team. Like when somebody dropped three grand on a computer setup, and we're leaving, high fiving me, being like, "I'm so excited!" I'm like, "When you get it home, set up. If you have any questions, come talk to me." Yeah, and like they're at ease, they're excited. They just basically paid. The, the same amount of money they would pay for a, a used car.
1: It is so possible to make people feel good about giving you money. And then the money to you feels like a thank you. And then they get what they want and they're happy. It's a very awesome feeling. And that's why business is magical, if you ask me. I agree. And it's, it's wonderful.
0: Remember your first computer. How cool did that feel? That was life-changing. Even if it was kind of intimidating. Or the first time you get on the internet. Or... Like I, to be a part of so many people's first experience with something that life-changing in the same way that we get to be a part of so many people's first product sale. It's awesome. It's the coolest. It's, it's really so it just great. the coolest.
1: Uh every time you say internet, I hear drunk Jeff Goldblum. Just internet. internet. <laughs> you're the creator of. You're the purveyor of great <laughs> <bright> stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry guys. <laughs>